you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. We help you say yes to the creative call to adventure. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into today's episode. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it, got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. Today on the show, we have William Derezowitz, author of the new book, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. This episode is very special to me, and I think it's an important episode of our show because it's different than any other episode of this podcast. Creative Pep Talk is about helping you focus on the things that are in your control as a creative and, and, and it helps you maximize those things to reach your potential. But sometimes I think that because we have that focus uh, that we don't always shine a spotlight on the other side of this equation, AKA the things that aren't in your control and, and just how many of those things uh, are up against you and how hard it is to thrive as a creative in this world. And I think, you know, in a way, by not just focusing or, or making some room for those things in some episodes, we're doing a disservice to the struggle that every creative faces. And I think that this episode has potential to kind of, uh, you know, 
kind of be an act of solidarity and 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 and, uh, and and help us feel seen. So William interviewed me uh, and hundreds of other artists a few years ago to get a picture of the state of working artists, and he saw this truth that that there's so much working against creatives to thrive and how resilient they need to be in a deep and close up and personal way. The struggle of the artist and and is real and and we go into this and much more in this conversation, but in my heart, this chat and this book, as challenging as they might be and the truths that contain that it, they contain as challenges challenging as they are, are ultimately hopeful to me in a deeply profound way. My conversations with William have been, uh, have changed my confidence and changed how I've seen myself in such a positive way. Why? Two reasons. Number one, this book is a revelation. Whenever some new truth comes to light, it's a good thing, no matter how hard to swallow that truth might be. Why? Because you can't cure a disease that isn't diagnosed. No matter how dire it may be, the diagnosis is the first step to any possible healing or change. This book will help you see what the real problems are in that you're facing, and they will help you focus your energies to overcome those things or to co compensate for them. Number two, this book is a gift. When William asked to interview me for this book, and if you read the book, uh, there's a lot of our conversations sprinkled throughout the book. When he asked to interview me for this, I had no idea how powerful that gesture was going to be uh, and what impact it had on my life. William is an intellectual and he's a best-selling author. He's taught at two Ivy League schools, Columbia and Yale. And by his own admission, he is not a creative Having someone like him from that side of the establishment take an interest in my story and in our story and in our struggles as creatives, it was a profound experience. I remember feeling so justified and so validated after this conversation. And it made me realize like, no, these things are genuinely hard and creatives are insanely resourceful and resilient to make it wherever they get in the state of things. My struggle to succeed and, and show my value in this world felt so seen by this book and by this conversation. And again, as truly difficult as some of the truths are in this work, I take tremendous hope from someone like William championing our cause. This is a special episode of the show. I hope you are as moved by it as I was, and you're going to hear that probably in the chat. And I hope you get William's book, The Death of the Artist. Here it is. I wanted to start by saying just a genuine thank you, because first of all, even when you interviewed me, I don't remember when it was, but 2017, having, yeah, yeah, 2017. So it's been it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while, yeah. Um, which is the book world, I guess. Um, but even the interview process was such a gift to me to have someone in your shoes asking me questions and listening to my experience as a creative person. And then as I've been diving into your book, and I see some of my stories in there and I see the the stories of so many other creative people 
it just feels like such a gift that you've given to creative people. And I just, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, it was written in that spirit. And I was really hoping that people would get that. And uh, I'm really glad that you got it. Yeah, I, I definitely did. And I, uh, you know, it kind of reminded me um, of this thing I heard on NPR's uh, Hidden Brain podcast. They did an episode to try to clear up the real differences between right brain and left brain people because there's all this, you know, uh, popular knowledge about it that's not really true. And And one of the things that they say is that the right brain people have a really easy time valuing left brain dominant people, but left brain dominant mm -hmm. people tend not to really see the value of the right brain people. And so I just feel like as I'm diving into this, um, and you, by your own words, say you're right. not a creative, which I'm not, right. sure. I'm not sure that's true, but it just felt like, man, this is such a unique thing for someone with your background and expertise uh, to, to dive in and tell these stories. It's just, it's just kind of unheard of. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, um, it's a, it's a gift, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gift in return for the immense gifts. I, this is going to sound sentimental or maudlin, but it's so true. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I've been a book critic, English professor. I was a dance critic. I mean, like everybody on the, in the universe, I listen to music. I mean, I love art. Art is really, I mean, to say that it's given me so much, it's given me a career. I yeah. mean, like I said, you know, like I said, a literary critic, literary scholar, whatever. So I'm really happy to have the chance to give back. And well, we can get into this. I mean, sure. I'm going to get into kind of the book and, and all that, but I just wanted to start in the heart of it. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, I, I mean, and, you know, as you know, one of the places that I quote you was about how creative children and adolescents are treated, but yeah. Uh, something that I think I haven't even been thinking about as much since since the the book came out and we were praying to to bring it out than I even was when I was writing it is honestly just how little I really I mean I how little artists are appreciated I mean yeah. I'm just going to say it like that you know what I just said about myself it's really true of everybody art is incredibly important to everybody and they have their artists that they you know. When you when you love an artist, you really love them. You worship them, but yeah. just sort of the typical artist, like you meet some kid who wants to be an artist, or you just meet some person who's not a famous artist who's an artist. If you're not in that world, where you're like, what what's wrong with you, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Yes, and I even even as an artist, I feel like there's a there, sometimes it's easy to have a chip on your shoulder of like. Well, oh, you want to be an artist? Well, prove it. Get to work. Like it's not – it's just not starting it as an artist and, and before you've discovered anything in yourself or been discovered or affirmed or validated or whatever, it is a – it's – you have to really have some some serious uh, – I don't know, well, iron will and, and to, to keep going in that because nobody's happy that you're, you've chosen this or that you're doing this stuff. That's right. You have to have incredible self-belief. Yes. Incredible perseverance and courage. Yeah, I agree. So, okay. So the book is uh, The Death of the Artist. And I wondered if you could tell my listeners a little bit about what it's about and then also followed by what drew you to this project. I think I can, I, I think I can answer those questions together maybe maybe easiest to yeah i uh you know i 
At the most basic level, I had a question that was nagging at me that I needed to answer for myself. So there's the, the two stories, right? There's the Silicon Valley story. There's never been a better time to be an artist. Just put your stuff out there. The internet will take care of the rest. You're going to have a, a wonderful life. And then there's the artist story like, yeah, you can put your stuff out there, but nobody's going to pay you for it. Mm. Um, and of course, I, I believe the artists, partly because I trusted them more, partly because it made sense. They were in a better position to know, but at the same time, lots of people are making art, and it seems like some of them at least are making a living at it, or at least a partial living. So I really wanted to know how that was happening, and also by knowing how it was happening, like really assessing like what is the financial, what is the economic state of artists today? In other words, is it really harder than it used to be, mm. or is it really easier than it used to be? And the book. Um, which is based on a lot of reading, but mainly the interviews I did with you and about 140 other people, mostly artists and also, you know, other people involved like editors and producers and some academics yeah. and so forth, right, is mainly just a really fine-grained, intensively researched answer to that question across you know, I sort of, to, to manage the project, I, you know, I, I confine myself to like the four main art forms, music, writing, visual art, film and television. And I talk about the broad conditions that affect everybody, um, the, the sort of general ways that people are making, making it work. And then I also have separate chapters on each of those four. And even within those chapters, half a dozen profiles of specific people, because of course, I think as every artist already knows, one of the answers to how how are people doing it is everybody does it differently. Mm. So I thought the more examples of specific people and how they're doing it and how they're doing by doing it the way they do it, the better. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that the title uh, and the tagline of how creators are struggling to survive in the age of billionaires and big tech, I think it begs the question of what size problem are we dealing with here? Give it to me straight. What are the, what are, what is your findings? What, what are we, what, what are face, what are uh, artists facing today? Well, um, I would put it briefly like this, because, you know, and certainly the answer will depend on which art are we talking about and which person are we talking about and where you are in your career, of course. But I mean, broadly speaking, the arts most, I mean, the arts in general are suffering, um, Billion, tens of billions of dollars have been diverted, you know, is diverted annually from artists to the tech platforms, which control the fate of so many artists. Mm. Also, across the arts, we see, you know, what people call the blockbuster effect, where however much money we're talking about, whether the pie is smaller than it used to be, which it usually is or not, more of it is going to the top. Yeah. Therefore, what do we have? We have, and this is sort of my you know, the headline, how I would boil it down. We have the disappearance of the middle, the middle tier of artists. So defined as not the blockbuster success that everybody's heard about, but the person who has established themselves in a career is working full-time or as close to full-time as possible, is doing it seriously, has gained the respect of their peers, of critics has 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 developed an audience and a following is producing work on a regular basis. That person, and admittedly, that's already a small fraction of all the artists out there. 
but sort of the working professional artist before the internet came along, I mean, not forever, but in the last few decades before the internet came along, that person had a middle-class standard of living. They could afford a decent place to live, decent health care. They could afford to send their kids to college, maybe. Mm. Uh, now, that job description is basically, for most people, for many people, a working-class standard of living, right. which is a synonym for poor. Yeah. No, you cannot afford a decent place to live. One of the stories here is what's happened to housing costs. You can't afford really good health care. And far from being able to send your kids to college, a lot of people told me that they feel they can't afford to have kids in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's a winner-takes-all kind of thing. Yeah. I hadn't even really uh, given much thought to it before this, but I hadn't thought about how how much big tech – and social media relies on the artist populating their platforms with work as a means for keeping attention. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I know that YouTube represents half of all music streaming. I can't yeah. tell you how much of, uh, you know, how, how, what percentage of YouTube in general is the music. I suspect it's a very large percentage. And, of course, much of it is also video that people make. And YouTube is unbelievably, I mean, it's unbelievably profitable. It's part of Google, so we don't know, but estimates are that it generates $30 billion a year and is worth $300 billion to Google, which is like a third of the entire company. So when I say that tens of billions are being diverted to the platforms, that's what we're – and YouTube pays seven hundredths of a cent per stream, according to estimates. They don't have to tell us what they pay. Sure. Seven hundredths of a cent, which means that if, if somebody streams your music, if your music is streamed a million times, which sounds like a lot, a million streams of it your songs, yeah. you get $700. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And YouTube gets the rest of whatever that generates in terms of data and how they sell the data and whatever. Yeah, and I guess this kind of... I think it's interesting. I think people, when they read the tagline, I think they need a lot of that research to even understand the correlation of the death of the artist to the age of billionaires and big tech. But I feel like that gets to some of that. Is that right? That's that's absolutely right. That's a big part of it. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's a very big part of it. And the billionaires, you know, um, uh, it's a, bill, a billionaire and it's sort of a um, it's a way of saying inequality. Yeah. I mean, that's how yeah. I intend that word. Yeah. And that yeah. gets to things like housing costs and distribution of wealth in the society. Yes. I remember reading an article back in the day. I believe it was before Instagram was acquired by Facebook. And they were talking about this winner takes all thing and, and saying if you compare, you know, they're not, it's in a way apples to oranges, but if you compare the photo, company that is, uh, you know, the the big photo company in our day, it's Instagram. But back in the day, it was things like Kodak. And they just compared the amount of jobs that Kodak produced versus Instagram was astronomical. Like the amount of people that worked for Kodak and and had a full living and, and the people that profited off of Instagram really was just this tiny little sliver. And I feel like you see that pretty much across the board in this era, including in art where you can you can uh, explode in the arts, but that, that middle slice is, you know, very hard to come by, especially in America. You know, having lived five years in England, 
um, you know, part of why I wanted to come to America was to give a shot at the big time, so to speak. You know, like I felt like the ceiling was higher there, but I also here, but I also knew that the middle was no man's land, that if we didn't make it, it would be much better to exist in England with free health care and what have you. That's right. That's exactly right. They're, they're because there's real social democracy in Europe and a real safety net. I think maybe, I don't know if it's less than it used to be. I, I worry about the UK in particular, but that, sure. that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here is specific to the arts and a lot of it is not specific to the arts. And it's just about the general condition of the American economy and, and what's happened to, you know, the middle class and especially what we're, gig workers, right? I mean, artists are gig workers and gig yeah. workers don't have the protections that other employees, that other people in the labor force have. I want to get to uh, some of the, you know, I, I kind of wanted to dig down on some of the real problems that artists are facing and what you've learned from this research. And I want to get to some of the patterns of how you've seen people grapple with that um, and, and what maybe some artists can do. But before we do, are there any other patterns and the obstacles other than, you know, just big tech and, and the internet in that way? Well, again, I mean, housing costs are a huge issue. Mm. Um, housing costs have gone up over 40% in the last 20 years. That's in real dollars, right? Mm -hmm. 40, over 40%. And then I, so much so that I, I didn't plan this when I started the book, but as I started writing, I realized I needed an entire separate chapter just on housing and rent and gentrification and those issues. And especially asking the big question, do artists have to live in centers? You don't. And yeah. I talk about some people who don't and who've made it work. But um, I really dug into this because people are, you know, of course, that the counter argument is, question, well, the yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, the counter argument is, uh, you know, the internet makes it possible to live everywhere, anywhere. And that's true. But uh, in order to, um, establish yourself as a young artist, not in every field, but in many fields, right? I mean, most obviously in film, okay? You're not really sure. going to get anywhere if you're not in New York or LA, or maybe you can spend a few years in Austin and the same thing in music and the same thing in sort of the quote unquote art world, you know, high end visual art and theater and dance. Um, I mean, we, we like, I mean, there doesn't mean that there aren't good artists everywhere, great artists everywhere. It's like, where sure. do you need to go to establish yourself? It means you have to go to a center. Now, once upon a time, centers like New York were cheap, basically yeah. until the 80s, gentrification started, and then it really kicked into gear again in the 21st century. So artists, young artists are in a situation of having to live where they can't live, right? I mean, artists have to live where artists can't afford to live is how I put it. Yeah. And they, you know, they make do. Yeah, I thought, you know, I, uh, the, when the internet is coming along and picking up steam, there's that, the general idea is this is just going to democratize location and geography and you're going to be able to do anything from anywhere. And for a long time, I kind of assumed that was true. And, you know, I, I had, a, I have a, pretty great career in many aspects. And I live in Ohio. And before this, I lived in Indiana. And I kind of bought into that idea. But as I was kind of going back and analyzing my own path, I realized that all of the essential things that happened right outside of school for me happened in London. And I was a two hour train journey from London. And there was like, 
I don't know, five to mm. 15 little opportunities that happened and they all happened in London. And my access to London was essential to those happening. And, uh, you know, I feel like instead of it creating this democracy, it's just put a premium on being in the centers. And it's, it's made it more expensive to be there and more important to be there, at least for some period of time in your career. I think that that's absolutely right. And it's also helped, and other factors have also helped consolidate a lot of the industries that used to be a little more widely diffused. So they're now they're all they're also consolidated in the big centers. I, I describe, you know, that that filmmaker who who's always lived a hand to mouth existence. She's a real dedicated artist, you know, uncompromising in her vision. And she needed it. She needed to go somewhere to write a screenplay for her first fiction film. She was living in New York and teaching in New York, and had it always done like five different things, right, to kind of make yeah. rent. So she moves back home um, to a city in the Midwest, and her cost of living goes down, but she can't do the five things because there just aren't that same opportunities to use her skills. Yeah. So she, I mean, she starts babysitting. She moves back home, right? She starts babysitting for the first time in high school, uh, since high school, yeah. because that's what she can do there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And uh, yeah, so, I, okay. So I feel like we've, we've painted the picture of the, the astronomical problem. And, and the truth is, all of my listeners who are trying to thrive as creative people, they know all of these things in real time. And I, you know, it happened to me early on of like, when I was just starting out, I thought, if I can make $40,000, uh, if I can make $50,000 as an artist, and I could, and I could, I, you know, as an illustrator, I felt I could do the math and see how I could do that. I'll be fine. But then when I hit $60,000, and it wasn't even close to enough to actually mm -hmm thrive, let alone survive, that's when all these problems started to become real. I was like, the, the amount of, I don't know, I think even just the dollar amounts, we don't really have a sense of what it takes to thrive in America for anybody, let alone artists. Yeah, 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 yeah. It depends where you live. It depends what your life sure. goals are. But I mean, this is, this is why so, so many, so few of the people in my book has been able to have children. Yeah. And, and also, I think people don't realize for a lot of artists, there's a big difference between gross and net. Yes, 100%. Right. If you work a normal job, your, your costs are, other than commuting, are probably very minimal. Um, if you're an artist, if you're like a visual artist, you can, you know, there was a gross and net could easily be 50%. Yeah. Because of the cost of materials, the cost of studio space. Absolutely. Okay. So, We've, we've painted the picture. There's a, there are some definitely some huge obstacles facing people. One of the things that I think is most interesting about your book is there's a lot of, from what I can see, all these conversations you're having, there's a lot of patterns in how people are finding ways of making it work. Often they're doing so on their own backs, through their own strategies, you know, through, through their own iron wills. Uh, but I wondered if you could speak to what some of the most important patterns you saw in artists that figured out how to make it work. Wow. You know, I'm not actually sure I've thought of this. I've thought about it this That's a way. good question then. So it's a good <laughs> question. It's a good question. Um, I mean, okay. So first of all, obviously all, all of the qualities of character that we've already started to hint at, like incredible perseverance, resilience, ability to, to absorb failure, ability to absorb criticism, um, 
incredibly hard work. Okay, that's a clear pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have that long paragraph where I document some of the, you know, someone who like wouldn't see her house for a week. She was she was one of the pioneering web series creator, and she she would work at the other at her partner's house and often not see her own house for a week. Yeah. Um, there was a guy, there was an illustrator, a cartoonist in Cleveland, who is. 50. He's in his early 50s. He's got seven children. And he said, he told me, I only work 50 hours a week now because right. I'm getting older and I'm spending <laughs> more time with my kids. Yeah. So um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of actual ways of sort of getting money, uh, obviously crowdfunding. We have to mention crowdfunding because that's really begun a, been a big thing. I mean, most of the younger artists I spoke with seem to have have – uh, had some interaction with Kickstarter and or Patreon. Yeah. It's not a panacea, which is the way it's been touted in the press. Sure. But it's, but it's a useful piece for a lot of people. And then the other thing, which is just what, I mean, what everyone has been saying, I think is true, which is that since quote unquote content has been demonetized, uh, anything that can be digitized can be priced. The price can be driven towards zero. You need to find other things. You know, you need to find other ways. And, and what what are the two the two two of the things that can't be digitized are physical objects and live experiences. M- you know, mm. most obviously, like in music, like a live performance, but it can mean a workshop or a class or whatever. Yeah, that it, let's. Ju- I want to jump into the crowdfunding aspect of it. I'm just curious. I have a Patreon. It's a big deal to me. I I tell um, I talk to a lot of creatives about how do they how do they create personal strong connections to their audience and there's this notion of 1000 true fans which uh, i know that you're familiar with um is that is that the most surefire path at this point from your research well aren't you the one who likes to say that there're no shortcuts there uh, are there no shortcuts there's <laughs> shortcuts right okay yeah. um yeah, i, I would not right, right, right. i got right. it backwards <laughs> i i uh i would i would not um I, I first i would never use the term sure path because there're no sure, sure yes paths. right totally i would i i, I would and i i wouldn't i don't think i would say that about patreon oh i mean because I don't know that it would work for everybody for mm-hmm. the kind of art they do. Yes. And again, even with the people, I mean, I did, there's that writer, Monica Byrne, who really has a lay down, has a base support on Patreon that covers her basic expenses. But um, the, from statistics that I, that I quote, it seems to be the case that only a small percentage of people on Patreon make even more than the equivalent of minimum wage. Right. Yeah. Um, what is, whatever that is, you know, sort of federal minimum for, for like $1,000 a month or something. Yeah. So it's, I think it's a great piece, but I don't think it's like, oh, I'll go on Patreon and that's going to solve all my problems. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely true. One other question I had was, what is your favorite? I always feel like um, whenever I make something, uh, be it a book or an illustration or whatever, I often feel like the thing that's my favorite isn't always perceptible to the audience. And sometimes there's some really interesting things there. In terms of the research 
even just the process of making it, but then also a particular chapter or section or idea. What's your favorite thing about this project? Um, my favorite thing in doing the project was talking to people were the interviews, like the ones that we had, which, I mean, I asked people for an hour. Sometimes, I don't remember how long ours was. I think ours went way over an hour, yeah, which was not unusual, sometimes even two hours, because, uh, you know, I w they were open-ended conversations. I wanted to conduct them over the phone, not in person, not with video, so that people could kind of lose themselves in the conversation. And it was really moving to me to have, you know, to kind of connect with people like that. Mm. And, and, and my favorite thing in the book, my favorite chapter grew in an unexpected way out of those conversations. And that's the one on the life cycle, which kind of sits to one side of the book. It's sort of a chapter that um, isn't really specific to this time and place, although I tried to make it as, as much so as possible. But I realized you talk about patterns. Um, I, I hesitated when you asked me about patterns and the way people are making a living. But yeah. what I saw were patterns that started to emerge in what people told me about their lives. And I realized that I could plot a kind of generic or typical artist life path with about six different uh, points along the way that came out of these talks. Yes. And of course, you feature very prominently in one of them, which is, so the first thing people tell me, or the first thing if we're going through a life chronologically is, so many people tell me, I knew from an incredibly young age that I wanted to do this, that I was going to do this, which is not typical for what most people do in their lives, right? Yeah. But, you know, I was writing when I, I was reading when I was two and I was writing when I was three, or I knew yeah. I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 12. And then that second stage is what, how the world reacts to those aspirations. And we already touched on this. Mm. Um, it was amazing to me how little support, how many of the people I talked to reported getting just relentless opposition and resistance from their family, from their schools, from their worlds, their environments, their, you know. But of course, there was a self-selection, right? I was only talking to people who were still doing it. Mm. So... I was, and, and that's the, at the end of that chapter, even after I've done the whole arc of the life, I say, what kind of people are these? Who signs up for this? And that's when I talk about incredibly tough, resilient, resourceful, tenacious people who are willing to sacrifice and who could, you know, bounce back up when they're knocked down. I love doing that chapter. Man, I, I, I don't know if I had... I probably hadn't noticed that pattern and I hadn't given it much thought of, you know, that these are people that, ju yeah, just, the, just the, that cycle. It actually really moves me because I, a lot of my close friends now are, you know, career creatives um, who some way, one way or another figured out how to make it work. And uh, just everything you just said is so accurate and, it just feels like a celebration of something that other people just don't notice and take for granted. And we go into this COVID situation, and this is one of the things that I, I've seen people highlight a few times is like when we were in lockdown, the first thing that we start – the first thing we turned to was art to get through it. Right. And it was a bunch of different right. types of art. And those artists, a lot of them have suffered. There are, There's definitely some – there's definitely a portion that are trust fund people that were given some stuff and, and what have you. Yes. Uh, and that, I get it. I've seen it a million times. I know the art schools, 
are typically full of them, but they're not necessarily yeah. the people that go on to make stuff that reaches people, you know, that uh, I know that they exist as well, but often the people that make stuff that moves people and changes people or, you know, excites people, they're people that you just described through that life cycle. Yeah. I mean, you can't get through it. You can't even get to your thirties unless you like are really yeah. extraordinary. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I sort of, I mean, I, 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 I admired artists in a kind of general way before I wrote this book because I admire what they do so much. And I, and I know if, you know, I knew a few in my personal life already, but I really didn't get, get this until I had to focus on it and think about like, who is going to get through this winnowing process? Yeah. It's gotta be somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course I start that little passage where I, where I say, you know, what kind of person signs up for this by referring to someone who I, uh, Sharon Loudon, who's a painter and an educator and an author, uh, who, who, and I quote her saying like, people meet me and they're surprised that like, I don't have paint in my hair and I can speak in full sentences. Right. And I also mentioned that Sharon, and like I said, I mean, she's got a, you know, career, institutional affiliations, all the trimmings. She's in her, she's also in her early fifties. Her parents still do not accept her as an artist. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, I used to, I mean, I used to say this to my students and this is sort of my last book, you know, Excellent Sheep about yeah. how kids who go to fancy colleges. Like when I talk to people about this and, you know, you go through, I mean, part of the problem with an upbringing like that is like you go through it and you're supposed to open up all these options, but instead you end up feeling like, I have to do something that makes a lot of money. I, I can't, for example, be an artist because, you know, what are my college classmates going to think at our 20th reunion or what are my parents going to think? And I say to them, like, the most, the, the best gift you can give yourself is to not care what other people think about your choices. Last question is, uh, it, you know, obviously my whole uh, listenership is creative people. Well, not all. Yeah. Like we talked about that, but a lot of them are. And, um, I wondered, uh, what, why do you think that they should uh, read this book? Well, okay. So first of all, I mean, there's been a lot of doom and gloom in this conversation, or just let's say a lot of hard facts. Sure. I want to be really clear. I did not write this book to discourage anyone. Um, quite the opposite. And in fact, you know, uh, what we said five or 10 minutes ago about kids wanting to choose art and being discouraged. I would actually say that if you feel like you have a calling for this, you should go for it. You should give it a shot because you're going to really be regretful and bitter if you didn't. But, and this is where the book comes in, go in with eyes open, know what you need to do, know what the landscape is. And also know that you give it your shot and it might not work. And you need to be prepared to go do something else after 10, 12, 15 years, whenever it is that you decide that maybe you've realized this isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And then, and so the book, I mean, the book is as much information as I could stuff in about what it looks like now, what the obstacles are, but also what the opportunities are to piece together a creative life in this economy. I I definitely think that's in there. And on top of all of that, the thing that I get from this work is just the the feeling of being seen. And this is something that I I want to do on this podcast is say, "Oh, is it is it been has it been really hard for you?" 
you, yeah, that's exa- that is the experience. And th- and I feel like that's what I got from this and got from your interview and and got from the book is uh just the feeling of being seen and 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 heard and recognizing yeah, this if it feels hard, that's because it is hard. And and let have some awareness about these are I feel like there's a big it's almost like a map of uh, all of the places where um, you're set up to fail and you get, you get, uh, when you know that, and that's all we talk about that on the podcast all the time as here are the challenges. Let's not pretend like they don't exist. And if once you have the awareness and you accept them, then you can actually start doing battle with them. And that's where things start to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then finally, I would say also that you're not alone, right? These struggles and doubts, uh, everyone, Everyone has these, you know, it's not just it's not you. It's not something that's wrong with you. It's not, it's just, you're not alone. Absolutely. And I, I got that, I got that feeling from this. And so I just, again, I just want to, I want to say thank you for doing it, listening to artists, telling our story, especially to people that are probably very unfamiliar with it. And, uh, and thanks for coming on this show and sharing a lot of what you learned. This was really great. I'm so glad you had me on and we've kind of come full circle, you and I, yeah. you know, you helped me write the book and now I'm here and um, thank you so much. Absolutely. Hey, super big thanks to William for coming on our show and even huger thanks to him for telling the story of the creative struggle to the world and to a totally different group of people. Um, It just means so much to have our experiences validated uh, by someone in his shoes and and with such uh, width and breadth. And, uh, and I really appreciate you. Um, you know, after talking to William and being interviewed, I just left that conversation feeling so much less crazy, uh, as a creative person. And I felt like, you know what, he mirrored that my experience was true. My struggles were real. And, and the ways that I've overcome some of those struggles are as profound as they felt like they were. Uh, and so that was that was super meaningful to me. And I hope you felt that in the conversation. Thanks, William. Everybody go check out his book, The Death of the Artist. I think uh, it can be deeply educational for kind of your war plan as a creative. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Thanks to Jordan Aaron for editing the show. Thanks to Sophie, my wife, for uh, content assistance. Thanks to Ryan Appleton for scheduling, managing, and uh, and producing, helping uh, figure out the content of this show as well. And thanks to all of you for listening every week. Until we speak again, stay pepped up. <laughs>